Hello, and welcome to Sounding Out with Izzy, the podcast where we have conversations with musicians, music producers, publicists, live promoters, zine makers, journalists, and more about their experiences working in the music industry as women, non-binary, and queer femme people. I'm your host, Isabel Corp, the founder of the Queer Femme music-based blog and YouTube channel, A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Today, I speak with Shilpa Ray, a singer-songwriter, poet, and harmonium player from Brooklyn, New York. A diligent student of punk, blues, and rockabilly, Shilpa Ray describes herself as a wailing, fire-breathing cyclops ripping off Nina Simone, ripping off Screamin' Jay Hawkins, ripping off the devil. Her latest politically charged album, Portrait of a Lady, tackles bodily autonomy, abuse, political pandering, and trauma exploitation in the media, with extremely direct song titles such as Bootlickers of the Patriarchy, Lawsuits and Suicide, and Cry for the Cameras. Shilpa and I discuss the physical and emotional process behind making the album, our current thoughts and feelings on the ongoing struggle for liberation for all people of different backgrounds and classes, and collaborating with Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, as well as Andrew Bird. As usual, I would like to remind listeners that I am paying for the podcast out of pocket, so if you would like to help me continue to create more episodes and maybe buy me a coffee as well, please consider donating to or checking out my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Those who join my Patreon will get to unlock bonus content, including music-based film reviews with special guests, unheard and unedited conversations in podcast episodes, playlists curated by yours truly, as well as early access to some of my YouTube content. However, I understand that finances are tight for many people, so if you are unable to join the Patreon, I fully understand. All I ask is that you give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as that really helps me out in my effort to get the podcast in front of more people. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. So when I first heard your music, I was completely floored. I think Alt Citizen described it as like Patti Smith, heavily laden in blues. And when I heard your song, Heteronormative Horseshit Blues, not only was I just transported by your voice but I remember thinking who is this mystical magical creature and how has the universe sent me like something so perfect like because I love glam I love rockabilly I love blues I love new wave I love punk all the genre music nerd name drops (laughs) and you're just like everything oh I love it so much so I'm curious what type of stuff you grew up on because you grew up in Jersey, right? Well, like what were you listening to? A lot 
of old music, actually. My parents would listen to like a lot of Bollywood or like classical Indian music, but a lot of old Bollywood. It wasn't like what was current. It was more like what came out of the 60s and 70s, which is more psychedelic, actually, because everybody was kind of doing the same thing at the time. And like we had a lot of really good oldie stations growing up in Jersey. So I remember listening to that and really identifying with that more than current music, even though I have a huge fondness for 80s music because I grew up in the 80s. I was a kid in the 80s. So I do love that a lot, too. So it was, a, it was a lot of different things, but mostly a lot of Indian music. My dad had a huge problem with us listening to American stuff growing up and at one point had banned like any kind of American or English music in the house. So we'd have to like kind of find it for ourselves. And I just would find things in like the CD racks in the libraries, which is like how I found out. I found out about the Velvet Underground that way. I found out about like television that way because they just had those things and not like what was trending at the time. (laughs) So I just have a whole other way I guess I had a different path of finding what I listened to rather than just going with what was current constantly yeah for sure that's all the stuff that my dad was just at least spinning on his turntables growing up and when I grew up and realized that every indie kid my age just worshipped those records I remember going like oh wow (laughs) <laughs> I think my dad might actually kind of be cool. Cause you- <laughs> oh, wow. That's so funny. That's so funny when you have that realization. My mom is a very interesting artistic person in my life because she was a painter before she got her arranged marriage. And it was like super old school. And I think women of her generation tend to lose their personalities through family Like, it just, it was that way, which I feel like, I mean, it says a lot, but that's, you know, how I grew up was with a very, like, old-fashioned culture. And I remember having this moment with her, like, I was visiting and we were parked at a Hobby Lobby and I kept telling my mom not to go in because it's, like, super (laughs) anti-everything and I was like, don't do it, you know? And she's like, you know, an old lady. And she's like, I don't understand. But at the time we were in the parking lot and the classic rock station was on and they were spinning Black Sabbath. And I thought my mom was going to turn it off because it was time to go into the Hobby Lobby. And she stayed in the car. She zoned out. And when the track was over, it was paranoid. She looked at me and she's like, man, that was really good. I was like, wow. Who are you? (laughs) But she was a big country music person. So she would listen to a lot of like Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, and Johnny Cash. She would talk about Johnny Cash all the time when I was a kid because he was on Little House on the Prairie. And she's like, I know who that is. And we thought she was so lame because when I was growing up in Jersey, like country music is so lame. And now it's hip. And I'm like, my mom already turned me on to all of this stuff. She already knows about, yeah. And now it's like really trending and like everybody wants to do country music now. And I was like, wow, it's so weird. But yeah, parents are cool. They just, <laughs> they just kind of, you know, <laughs> probably not to their children. 
That's really cool. What sort of, I guess, when you started making music, how did that sort of transition from being a music fan to a musician sort of transpire for you? I was always involved in music in some way. I was trained in vocals and learned how to play piano from a very young age. I never thought that was something I was going to pursue. It was almost something I was like, you have to do this so we can show off how well-rounded our child is kind of thing, you know? So I didn't really like doing any of it. And I didn't understand it until I actually, like a lot of other rock musicians heard the Velvet Underground for the first time. And I was like, oh, this is, this could be meaningful in a different, a completely different way. And there's also, I was trained in mostly classical Indian music. So there was always a language barrier for me. Like I can speak some of my parents' language, but not to such a sophisticated degree that I'm going to understand a lot of poetry or a lot of vocabulary that's like, you know, above a third grade level. (laughs) So not knowing what I was singing was really frustrating. I don't think I was like connecting to the music as much as I could have had I known what it meant. So I think I view it differently as an adult as like, wow, I can't believe I did that for so many years. That's really like cool. And I wish I was more disciplined about it, but now I had a total attitude and I was a super undisciplined brat of learning music at a young age. I didn't like it at all. I, I just didn't want to perform. I didn't want to be in front of people performing until I found something that I like, it really like hit me in a more like in my soul rather than, you know, something I just had to kind of puppet mime for, you know, people. And that was when you heard the Velvet Underground? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts. Go ahead. I share that deep, like love and affection for the Velvet Underground as well. I'm also aware that, like, from what I've read, of what you've said in the past that you were a fan of music, but it wasn't sort of until you heard the Velvet Underground that you really took the initiative to start making music of your own that you actually connected with. I'm curious, like, and I think a lot of people share that view of the Velvet Underground. And I'm curious, what do you think it is that makes them like different specifically? I think it's kind of, that whole the imperfection of it you know it's like I know a lot of people who've also been influenced by you know the Beatles or something but I just never connected I like Beatles the Beatles and stuff if someone played it I wouldn't be like hating on it or anything but I I didn't really I don't connect with that as much I like I like Lou Reed's whole deal about being a total loser (laughs) I just I just understood that like it's 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 music made by somebody who felt very ostracized and imperfect he really can't sing that well and they tried like chord changes in music that weren't hits and it was it just opened this whole other door that you didn't have it was like a no achievement type music so anything could go 
you just can make a lot of noise. You could hit glass. You can do anything, you know? And I, that's what I was most, and the lyrics were just like crazy and cool because it was just all the people that, like I grew up in the East Coast. So, you know, and when I was in high school, a lot of my friends were drug addicts and I knew a lot of that kind of personality, that jittery kind of crazy East Coast person. And I was like, that that's like that person over there. It just, it just all started to make sense to me rather than the narrative of, you know, winning all the time. <laughs> I don't know. Or like being in love or like, you know, going through a breakup or something, which I just, I was just not that teenager at all. You know, I didn't, I didn't really date. I wasn't the person who was in the couple in middle school or anything like that. You know, I didn't relate to that kind of stuff at all. I, but I did relate to a lot of the alienation and like the darkness of, of what the velvet underground represented for sure. Definitely. And I feel like they were actually willing to write and song, write songs about things that no one else had the gall to actually write songs about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's what makes like the possibility of the music so limitless because it could be it, it just felt free. It just like, oh, you could say you could pretty much say anything and, and you know, it, it would be OK. Of course, you know, looking back on the history of they didn't they had their own controversies. You know what I mean? When I was a kid, I didn't really know much about all of the backstories about the people that were making the music or the histories were very hidden. But yeah, I mean, then you start kind of learning about things and it's like, oh yeah, people who make music don't, aren't necessarily the greatest people. And it's, that was kind of interesting to kind of see as an adult. It's like, oh, this really influenced influenced me. But if, had I been living during that time, I wouldn't be incorporated in this at all because I'm a person of color or, you know, being a woman, you know what I mean? There's just a lot of things with that that's that's exclusive for sure. So that's interesting to see as an adult, but still be, you know, the language of the music is universal, but the, the backstory is not so much. Yeah, and the cultural settings and the spaces are not necessarily always super welcoming either. No, they're yeah. not. That was something that was very apparent when I was a kid going to shows, like when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and I was going to school and going to shows, and it was like most people who are brown tend, were sort of pigeonholed into always listening to hip-hop and R&B, which is, I love hip-hop a lot too, but I liked rock and roll, and I remember sort of being the oddball within my own ethnic community, but then also reaching into the, this other area where I was not acceptable at all, but still like wanting to see or wanting to hear music that was presented that way. And that was really difficult. I, I don't know how else to express that, but it was, it was really hard. And it was hard for a very long time because what we're seeing now, where is the incorporation of people of color, people of different 
orientations and different gender identities, like all that stuff probably happened in the last five years. It was not, you know, and I'm, I'm in my forties now, so I'm seeing it now. I didn't see it for a very long time and it was very, very difficult to be part of a community for a very, very long period of time. I'm glad it's starting to kind of become more accepting, but I mean, yeah, it took a very long time to get there for sure. I guess we'll, to touch on what you just said, growing up in New Jersey and then coming to New York and also being an artist, how do you feel like your identity as a, as a woman of color and as someone who grew up on the East Coast is incorporated into your art? Do you feel like it's sort of like inevitable that parts of you always seep through, like even when you're writing like fictional songs about these casts of characters that you come up with and all that? Yeah, I kind of... (sighs) It's a hard... It's complicated. I have a very complicated relationship with it because everyone's expecting something when they see a person like me and I won't give it to them. And I always think that's the inner trick with me, you know? I feel like a lot of Indian culture and Indian music is definitely ingrained in a subtle way in how I write and how I think, but I refuse to be defined as an ethnic artist in the eyes. And I, I excuse, like, I don't want to sound offensive or anything, but I don't want to be defined by a bunch of white people in terms of what I'm supposed to sound like or what I'm supposed to talk about. I, I just don't. So I deliberately mask a lot. I deliberately veer a different direction just to see, just to mess or mess with people. Does it work in my favor? No, I probably could have been more successful just singing ragas all day and not like, and just playing the part, you know what I mean? But I, I just won't do it. I mean, who else would bring a harmonium in, on the table and play rock and roll music? I mean, it, I, I did that for a very long time. I play mostly keys now, but I'll switch off for sure. And man, was that controversial. I had everybody trying to tell me how much, how weird it was, how unlistenable it was, how I'm never going to make it if I do this. And the minute I switched, everyone was like, well, where did it go? That's your whole thing. That's your whole shtick, right? And I'm like, no, (laughs) it's not. I'm a musician, so I play music and I try different instruments. That's pretty much, that's, that's it. That's as, it's as simple as that. It's not my shtick. Exactly. (laughs) It's almost like people are not a monolith. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're a human being. And that's like, that's actually where everyone has something in common is that we're just human beings at the end of the day and we're complicated and we have lots of layers and lots of different bits of our identity that just composes into who you are and who I am. And that's, that's it, you know? 
One thing that I love about your writing specifically is that this is where I hear a lot of, okay, I hope you take this as a compliment, but a lot of like Nico and Lydia Lunch crossed with like Weird Al almost because you're so (laughs) funny. Your writing is very funny. That is so cool. (laughs) But there's simultaneously like you tackle very serious issues and there's gallows and there's a lot of like gallows humor and stuff like that. So, but I was, and I'm wondering where you would say that your type of how you would classify your specific writing voice. Do you, would you say it changes depending on the year or whatever, or the day or. I, I don't know. All I can say is as I've gotten older, I learned that the way I write is more simple than how I used to write when I was young. It stops becoming about how sophisticated you can make a line. When you're younger, you just always want to be as impressive as possible or as like overly clever, which is a very young thing to, and there's nothing wrong with that. And now it's just like, well, I'm just going to say exactly what's in my head and who cares, you know, but that's just a product of, you know, being old, you know, just an older writer at this point. And I have way a lot more years to become an even older writer. I think that's why writing is an old person's medium because you just stop giving a shit. Like you really stop giving fucks as you get older. Like there's just, as long as you know, like how to make money, clothe yourself, feed yourself, put a roof over your head. You just, the rest of it's just like not even important. And I think when you're younger, You still have that hope or that ambition of like what society could offer you if you accomplished something. And it just, it completely changes. At least it did for me. It changed, but it it took a few big lessons, I think, for me to get there. But yeah, I don't know. My sense of humor, my God, if we don't have a sense of humor, how are we going to survive? I mean, if you can't laugh about stuff, I don't know. I mean, things are pretty ridiculous, but we're all still alive. So you kind of have to cope some way, right? Right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And on your latest album, you really dig into the violence and abuse of power of gender dynamics and the flaws therein. And you don't sugarcoat it at all, which I love. I think I, and I, if I remember correctly, I read that the catalyst for this album was viewing Nan Golden's Ballad of Sexual Dependency at MoMA. Yeah. Can you describe to me the images you were viewing and what was going through your mind at the time? And for anyone who might be listening, a possible trigger warning for the... (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually, I stumbled into an exhibit by, the exhibit by accident. I was, I don't know how I got this gig, but I was a backing singer for Andrew Bird's show that he did at Carnegie Hall like years ago and this was back in 2016 it was such an opportunity and I couldn't I remember being at in at Carnegie Hall during soundcheck and I couldn't hit one of the parts because the jump was too big for my voice 
and I was trying and I couldn't hear it. And a lot of it is like the notes you're going to hear. And I was like so embarrassed because everyone was such a, like everyone was such a great musician. And I was like, I can't be, I can't be the person who can't hit the note, you know? So after soundcheck, I took a really long walk in order to get it, get it right. And I stumbled into this exhibit and the first image I had seen was the portrait of her face healing from her boyfriends or ex-boyfriend at the time beating her up. And it is one of the most horrific and striking images that I had ever seen in my life without it. It was, there was like nothing about it that was trying to dissuade or persuade the audience. It was just there. And it was the first image I saw. And I remember like having that feeling at the time, like I have never written anything of any value in my entire life. Cause we all have gone through this. Like a lot of people I know have been in relationships that are hard like that, that are controlling like that. I can't say everyone knows what that's about, but I know a lot of people do because it's part of the fabric of our culture. It's like, it's okay to exert that kind of power and it has been historically okay to exert that kind of power over people. And that really struck me. And I also, for the first time, felt less alone. I think what that did for me was that it was it almost made me feel like it was all right for me to exist as an artist and have, have to gone through something like that myself because it's embarrassing. It, you, I mean, I remember her ex- explanation as to how she felt as an artist at the time and being a woman, especially just sort of delving into this world of counterculture and anarchy and being like, I will take the hits because it's not going to work in my favor because anarchy doesn't work in a woman's favor. It just turns into bullshit. You know, it's still very patriarchal. And I just remember identifying with that in a, in a very serious and deep way. Cause I also just sort of ran from convention and I was like, anything goes, it's a free for all. I want to be an artist. I want to know how to make art and I want to be judged on the same level as a man. And just being like taking all the punches, taking all the hits and being like, wait a second, this doesn't work in my favor at all. And just knowing that this is just part of the battle scars. And it's also like wrong. (laughs) It's wrong. Yeah, I I don't know. It's I don't think I, I don't know how much progress we've made in terms of that. I think it's great that people are talking about it, but I don't necessarily I'm not for the the circus that's become of what we are fighting for. Mm. Can you describe to me a little more of what you mean by that statement, like the circus of what we're fighting for? I can, I, I, I can come up with a million imaginations of what you mean. Um, and yeah, ideas, yeah. But I don't, when it comes to things like the Me Too movement, it completely went wrong where, when it stopped acknowledging people of different classes and different 
backgrounds in terms of religious backgrounds and cultural backgrounds. And it just became about celebrity. So you just see it as this thing that only happens in these circles, yet you're not, we as a society are not doing anything for the whole culture that makes the playing field equal almost to the, to the degree that we don't want it to be equal. Not everyone's going to get a New York Times article that is just like a weird imbalance of justice. That's, that's not going to, that's not going to work. You can't really go into litigation. Uh, something a lot of people say is like, why don't you take them to court? as if you can just take someone to court every day. It costs a lot of money to go to court and sue somebody. People who say, I'm going to sue you, and they really mean it, are ones who can afford to sue people. And we all know what that person looks like. You know what I mean? But no one's saying these things. Like, nobody's... I, I still don't... I don't know what programs like Time's Up... I still don't know what they're doing. I just hear about it yeah. in like a Hollywood sense, you know, people wearing colors, people wearing badges, people showing solidarity in these sort of odd ways. Yet the reality is all of this stuff is still going on and it's still like incredibly scary to stand up for oneself and say something. It's, it's still there. So what do we fix? We have a massive celebrity trials that nobody can identify with with people just torturing each other on online. We have no real educational system. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's just things on the backbone that are not doing there. You're just not building a structure that, that is garnering respect. Yeah. So how are you going to solve this problem? Exactly. And still people will go up to someone who is a victim of some kind of abuse or has been taken advantage of. And they'll be like, Oh, why didn't you sue your abuser? Why didn't you report? Yeah. Why the woulda, were, coulda, shoulda. The woulda, coulda, yeah. shoulda. It's like, it's yeah. almost like, the, it's like, you know how there's like this massive boom of like, I don't know, like the new market for true crime. It's like, I think someone called it the yassification of true crime or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So many women consuming true crime with like some psychological sense that they'll know what to do if they ever find themselves in a situation like that. When in reality, how is that any different from being like, oh, well, why was she dressed like that? Why was she out so late? Why was it's like... Does it not register to people? It's insane. It's insane. And we're constantly in that cycle. And it's, it's crazy. I remember having this one terrible altercation when I was in my mid twenties and there was the thought ran across my head at the time because I was in danger that I was like, you have to call the cops. And then I was like, no, how can I call the cops? There's just going to be men showing up. There's no women. How am I going to get guaranteed that I'm going to talk to a woman who's going to know what I'm talking about? When you're in the situation of being in a violent relationship, who really is out there that's trained to kind of know what to do? Nobody. And they don't instill any of that. And they expect 
you just know what to do magically, just do handle everything perfectly. And it's really scary. And it's like, take the money away, take the glamour away, take all of that stuff away. You got nobody. You got nobody except for the help, like that Medicaid that they're going to provide. So you can kind of see somebody if you can get into a community network. That's all they provide for you to talk to someone. It's really dismal. And I don't feel like these truths are being said. And it makes me really angry. I still have to face ag aggro man babies constantly. And it's like, how much, how much am I supposed to say about this? Because, I mean, are you going to believe me? Like, within a day, like, all of the things that you have to juggle and do and say, you really, like, unless you're that kind of person that, that and you do become like this after experience, is just very strong, very tough, and, and seriously has no qualms about confrontation and saying no, you don't have a leg to stand on. And saying no, that whole deal, that takes time. Hmm. It just does. I because it's scary. When I was when I was in my 20s, I being the idea of being ostracized or removed from a group or removed from was it was very frightening to think about. And when you get older, you're just like, ah, I really don't care. You know, I know what my drill is. I know exactly what to do and you'll never hear from me again, you know, but it's like, you don't want, you don't want that. You want to, you want to socialize when you're young and you want to be a part of something when you're young. And it, and it's such a shame that like people take advantage of that and exploit that night, the sort of naiveness of that instead of nurturing it. But that's the world we live in yeah. and that sucks. And no one's stopping that from happening. Yeah. And I, what you said about the commodification, almost like this is so dark. I can't believe I'm saying this phrase, the commodific celebritification of me too. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> that's something that you tackle really well in a song, like cry for the cameras. Cause there's yeah. so many people who don't have cameras to cry for. It's like, well, okay, yeah. well, well, what do I get? Like, yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's totally true. And yeah, you have, I mean, there's terms that are really dark, but true. It's like the, a rape porn was one of them when all the stories were getting busted and you had to say so much of the salacious details of what had happened because that's what people were wanting to read to get the readership, to get an audience interested in what happened to you. That's so messed up. That is such a crazy way of handling things. That's so traumatic for the person recounting what, what happened. It is really brave for anyone to come forward. You don't get anything out of it. You're trying your best to change society. It's like, and then you're still called a gold digger. It's just insane to me. It's like, it's it's just awful. Like, oh well, she got her name in the paper. That means she's getting something. She's not getting anything out of it, except a lot of heartache, a lot of trauma, and a lot of embarrassment. And it's 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 really tough. Like I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just I'm just gonna say how what I think is true. I don't know how to change it because it's a it's huge. This it's like it's such a huge problem. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't even know how to change it. Yeah. And then when you just think about how all of these, like, I don't know, 
like recounts and like the, these documented, I guess, recaps of what might have happened to someone. Like they're being made into documentaries that are becoming like blockbuster films I and they're know. making in money from this. Oh. It's so messed up. And it's like only the ones, that's why celebrity is like a huge deal. If the, your perpetrator wasn't famous and or you're not famous, no one's going to watch it. So we got to get that involved. So people, we have an audience to sell the story. And it's, it's unbelievable to me. I, I just, I don't know what to say. It's just such a weird, it's just such a weird, it's, I mean, it's fucked up. I just don't know how else to say it. It's, it's really fucked up. And I, I really hate it when like, you have to endure the losses of what's happening in the, uh, in that culture in terms of that. And everyone's like, well, the pendulum is swinging back. So in a couple of years, it's, it's going to be okay to like hit your partner again. You know, it's going to be all right. Cause no one's going to care because the pendulum is swinging back instead of it being like, this is wrong. Yeah. And this should never happen. Period. Yeah. 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 And one another song, another one of my favorite songs on the album is Manic Pixie Dream Con. And I was wondering what the sonic and thematic inspiration for that song in particular were. Well, it derives from that term, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which is like this horrid thing that re- is very reductive of, of women and what we provide for men in society. And I just really wanted to do the like the sort of bizarro spin on it where it's you take ownership of something and then twist it around it's like you know what I'm a manic pixie dream cunt and I do things for me you know I provide things for myself but I also thought it was really funny (laughs) so I had to kind of just go into that you know territory because it just made me laugh and sometimes I yeah a lot of the times when I write songs it's just to make myself laugh as well so I enjoyed writing that that was one of one of the fun songs I I got to I got to write so yeah well that's palpable it's because it's like it's really like it's like a violent kick in the teeth to listen to it but it's also so fun like yeah exactly like I would want somebody to be walking down a street and feeling proud if they were to hear that song and that that's that's what the the motivation was for it for sure and I also think it was really cool that you came up with these fictional characters. I'm not sure if it was just for the one specific song or if they run consistently through the album, but they're like 50s gender binary characters. Yeah. <laughs> like we called them, I think, Doris Daydream and Danny LaDouche. Yeah, Danny LaDouche. <laughs> Danny, Danny LaDouche. He's trouble, man. He's just trouble. That was also my first you know, for into doing drag. I'd never done, I've never done that before. And it was fun. I had a great time coming up with that. And I work with Abru Yildiz, who does a lot of the photography and the video stuff, and also Amos Poe. That was great. Working with Amos was amazing. If you ever need somebody to look at in terms of being a true artist and also having a 
very positive outlook on life. He's, he's the, he's the guy for that, for sure. But yeah, I had a great time doing that. And yeah, I needed to kind of make these sort of overblown extensions of, of myself in order to express, you know, how, what I was thinking and feeling for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And how was it to shoot that video? It was crazy because it was still during the pandemic. So we had to do everything in really small teams and remote, but I had, I still had a lot of fun because we weren't really at the time we had our normative was shot. I think we were only three people in the room before I gave the footage to Amos to do all the, the green screening and the, the narrative stuff. So I just had to do the, me singing the song against, you know, whatever lighting was going to be there. So it was just me, Abreu, and the makeup artist at the time. And it was exciting because it was just like three people in a room instead of like you, you by yourself, you know? So I had, a, I had a good time. It was just like the beginnings of kind of being able to socialize, but still not being able to do it to the extent we can do it now. Yeah. That's, it's crazy, like, to think that we're sort of back to socializing now, even though, like, the virus is still, like, multiplying and mutating. It's, like, it's kind of scary, but it's also kind of, like, whiplash, like. Yeah, it's, it's really frightening on the road. Touring is really, really difficult. I, I feel for every band that's trying to do something out there, I... This is the least amount I've been on a ro- on the road after putting a record out, but it's it's not easy. I mean, you're putting a lot of you have to invest a lot of money up front to go in the first place. And with the cancellations and the inflation prices and all the stuff that's happening, it's really really difficult to make that money back. And that stress is is unbelievable. It's never been easy, but it's like having this the virus around is making it it's wreaking a lot of havoc and at the same time you want to put your music out there you want to get out there you want to perform in front of people and i don't know it's i've had many discussions with other musicians about what to do and how to handle it and less is more that's all i have to say about that it's like if you don't have the budget don't go out on the road it's just not worth it and speaking of the road, I understand that you have a pretty large fan base in the Rust Belt. And yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering what, what, what it is in particular that, y- that you enjoy the most about going out there to middle America. How varied the audiences are. I'm constantly su- surprised at like who comes, who shows up, you know, it's like so any age, it could be any age, any gender, any, anything, you know? And I think with the Rust Belt, they love rock and roll. So that's, that's, you know, a definite thing. But yeah, I, I remember when I was starting out very early on, the, you know, the, the, the nightmare stories, people would say, oh, you know, you're a woman of color traveling. It's going to be really difficult for you outside of New York, blah, blah, blah. And I have to be honest, I mean, 
the KKK is not going to come to your show. It's like, you know, you're just gonna, you're just playing for people who want to see music. And it's, it's really varied. It's, I, I've had a couple incidences in, in spots, but never in the stereotypical places you think it's going to happen. Like anytime I travel down South and nobody bothers me, everyone's really nice, you know, same in the Rust Belt, you know, you would think it's like such a stronghold for swing states and republicanism and stuff. And it's, I mean, I'm sure people have very varied political views and there's reasons behind that, but I've never been treated poorly out there. So I don't know. I can't speak for everybody's experiences. So I'll, I can only speak for mine. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't invalidate someone saying like, I've had horrid experiences traveling in, in the States. No, it hasn't been, it hasn't been so bad. So. Yeah, I've heard a lot of, yeah, that, well, that's a lot of, I get that impression from a lot of people who have traveled to those States. And another thing that I've heard is that what's most gratifying is seeing the people out there who, who are really cool and might stand out and are different. And I'm sure like many of those, you'll see many of those people at your shows and they'll, and they'll just be like grateful to be in that sort of space. Yeah, absolutely. And also provide an understanding of like what being a red state means, you know, because yeah, the more you talk to people, the more you know what the conditions are, where they are from, and why people are probably not for voting a certain way. That's that's pretty good knowledge to have. I mean, I grew up in a bubble all my life. It, you know, I, when you grow up in the Northeast, it's super liberal, especially around New York City and like the metropolitan area of that. So it, it is cool to experience how people grow up and how people think in other places, other parts of the country that c- could kind of explain why people are holding on to certain ideals and, and things. I, yeah, I thought, I found that to be really valuable. I mean, and you also, if you do like experience racism, then you just know what people are like. It's just another, you know, reality that you see. I mean, I've experienced racism all my life growing up and pockets of it as an adult, and it's just there. So I read somewhere that some really cool new up-and-comer by the name of Nick Cave seems to think you're pretty special. <laughs> Who's that? I don't know. I've never heard of this man. He he should start a music career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you think, right? Um, but and Andrew Bird also really is has been a big proponent of your work as well. And so when you get like that type of praise, does that even like register to you, or is it something that you don't that you sometimes like to separate from what you're doing? Because I'm sure that can be like a lot of pressure as well. It is. It is a lot of pressure. I think it's because it's it's different going through it than what it looks like on the outside. You know what I mean? You, if anything, it's like I learned so much from both of them that that was what I took away from it. It's like how to be a stronger artist, how to 
how to be patient. You know, one of the hardest jobs I never thought I would have to do is to be a band leader and how to become better at that, what to take, what not to take. Nick was very, very cool in being like, it's okay to fire people if they're, you know, idiots. You can do that. You don't have to put up with things you don't want to put up with. And because he pushed me so much to play by myself for the tours I did, and I was so terrified of this, but he pushed it anyway because I think he knew that it would make me a better artist if I just did that. It would make me more self-sufficient. And that's why he kept doing that. He's like, yeah, if you're going to open these shows for me, if you're going to do this, it just has to be you by yourself. And it was really difficult. It was really hard. I cried a lot. It's just because I didn't know if I was prepared enough or good enough to pull it off. And at first, I don't think I was, but I think at the end of that tour, I became very good at doing it. And then I'm like, oh, now I know why I had to do that. I, I feel like a lot of the things about achievement and accomplishment in life is always about getting that fast result of now you're famous or now you're this or now you're that. And they did this for you. So th this is how big you need to be right now. And those things are completely untrue. It really is about your own learning curve and like how much you learn from the experiences that are brought to you and what you can bring to the table afterwards as an artist on your own. And that takes time and it's called working on your craft. And I feel like that's the most important thing you can take away for like the long term from any of that kind of stuff. I've had a, I've had a career that's very up and down. Some, some days are better than others. And, and sometimes I feel secure in terms of money. And sometimes I feel like I'm flat broke and I can't believe I'm broke at my age, you know, but that's the whole, that's what you sign up for when you make art. There's no, there's no consistency with that. You just have to have really good survival skills and that's about it. For sure. Yeah. And so I guess the last question I have is what do you feel like was the most challenging part of making this album? And what do you feel like was the most gratifying part of making the album? The most challenging part to be heard in terms of how arranging the songs and getting people to play the parts you wanted them, you want them to play. I had a very, very difficult time with that in terms of the lineup I had had at the time and also the lineups that I've been facing. It's, it's really, it was really difficult having to convey, having to convey how you want a song to go and not allowing somebody to play whatever they want on it is a very difficult challenge. And I think it's even harder when you're a woman telling a bunch of guys how to play. They don't want to hear it from you. And they'll, take, they'll, they'll use a lot of things like language, terminology, the way you said something, the way you looked at them while you said something. I mean, it's really crazy. 
Is that going to go away? Probably not. <laughs> I think there's an adversarial relationship between bandmates and the band leader, regardless of gender. Um, and that's, that's always been around, but as a female, it's even worse. But I learned, I learned how to be a lot stronger in what I want to do and say. I learned, I learned a lot by making this album. And I also learned how to value when things are good. Like I had a great relationship with my co-producer on this last record and kind of got a sense of independence from working with him to, to create like these ideas and bring them into fruition to kind of go in blinds. I'm not a synth player. I'm a keys player and just, just learning how to automate things. I never knew how to automate and just having that learning experience was, was wild. I, I never played all that synth before. A lot of that stuff is, is very heavy on knobs and programming and getting that crash course and having such a great time learning with somebody else was like amazing for me. And he provided that and he provided a great experience for sort of saving an album that I didn't really think was going to be made the way I wanted it or come off the way I wanted it to come off. So there was a good, there was some good that came out of it as well. But yeah, I mean, when you write things that are personal or you're writing something that has a, has a stance and it's not translating to the people you're working with, that's, that's really hard. It's a tough pill to swallow. It's a hard battle to fight for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure. Cause when, whenever I see so many, you know, what's, what's really, what I've always found really odd is whenever I see someone with a backing band that of all women, I'll just be like, Oh yes. And I'll just be like, Oh, that shouldn't have to be the response. Like, yeah, it's, it's getting better. I am actually working with a female guitar player and I love it. It's amazing. And not cause she's a female it's cause she's a amazing musician and a great personality to work with but also it's like I don't have to explain so much of myself you know I, one of the weirdest things that I don't understand with a lot of men is how much they want you to be smiling like an idiot all the time <laughs> It's, it's really crazy. Like, they're like, why is she not playing this role that I grew up with someone of her gender should be playing? It's like, are you serious? You know, it's like, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to smile more. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great bands that are very, very co-ed or non-co-ed. And there's a lot of women that are playing now and out there more than I had seen when I was young. And it will get easier and easier to just not even care much about what the gender is of who you're playing with and just play. But that's not been my experience at all in terms of my own like path on this. So I'm hoping that'll change. And is there anything else that you would like to shamelessly plug or promote before I let you go? Well, I am going on a really uh, a month-long tour in the UK and Europe, and I'm super excited about that. It's 
the only tour I'm going to be doing for this record this year. I'm not really sure what my prospects are next year since it's it's still like post pandemic stages is still early for mass amounts of touring. But I'm I'm super psyched about getting out of the country and and sharing sharing this record with people. And yeah, I guess we'll see what happens afterwards, but that's what's on the books now. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure and a privilege to have you. And I hope you have an amazing rest of your week and that the tour goes amazing. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I'm glad we got to do this. Thank you so much for listening to Sounding Out with Izzy. And a massive thank you to Shilpa Ray for joining me today. Remember to subscribe and sign up for the mailing list on my YouTube channel and written blog, both under the name A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested, consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode of Sounding Out with Izzy.